So, but we have this day to worship Christ. We have a, another Lord's Day that God has granted us, which is a beautiful thing. Turn your Bibles, if you would, uh, to Psalm 51. Uh, I did ask Brother Ivan today for the Bible reading to read that psalm because um, that particular chapter, because I'm going to be preaching uh, out of this this morning. I just felt a very um, strong urge, if I could use that word, um, to revisit this chapter and really um, dig into it and really kind of see what the Lord would have for us. And I know that many people struggle with what we're going to be dealing with today. And I pray by the Spirit of God that um, we would be be encouraged. Um, the title of my sermon today is Finding the Lost Joys. Finding the Lost Joys of Salvation. We're not going to go through the entire psalm today, this morning, but we're going to focus on one particular verse, uh, which would be the subject of our message today, and that would be Psalm 51.12, uh, the beginning of that where it says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Have you ever lost the joy of your salvation? Ever lost the joy of your salvation? I didn't say have you ever, have you ever lost your salvation. I said have you lost the joy of your salvation? I, I know there's been times where I have well, this text tells us that there was a tragic condition which had come into the life of David, the great man of God, who not only lost the joy of his salvation, but he had also lost all power of effective service for God. In Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus our Lord gives us a picture of what it means to persevere and what true joy looks like says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Paul said, Be joyful, always. But you see, there's a difference between joy and Happiness, because if we're not careful, we can look at the word joy and we can we can believe that that word means that we're to be happy at all times. And I think that's where a lot of churches go astray, uh, and they preach a health and wealth gospel, and where if you're not happy, then your faith is 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 not where it should be, which is false. Because the difference between joy and happiness. Um, we often assume that the feeling or the fleeting feeling of, of happiness and giddy laughter and contentment and the comforts of life is akin to the joy we experience in Christ. But joy supernaturally sustains our souls in the seasons of heartache, injustice, and even sorrow. Enduring the valleys of life is nearly impossible without the life-giving fuel of the joy in Christ. And there's a big difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is a reaction to something great. Joy is the product 
of someone great. Joy is the product of someone great. And that great is our Lord Jesus Christ. Job, who we know from Scripture, was probably the most persecuted servant of God and one who went through the most trouble as we read of his life and the tragic circumstances that fell upon him. Job even said in 19, chapter 19, verse 25, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on earth. This is what drove Job to be able to be sustained through such pain and punishing torment. He endured, not because he was happy and jumping up and down and and reading affirmations to himself of how good he was and how good he felt. But the reality is, is that he knew that his Redeemer lived. And there would come a day and an hour where he would see the manifestation of that reality. You see, the joy of our salvation and our effectiveness in ministry will always go hand in hand. If we at any time lose our joy in Christ, which is inevitably our salvation, we render ourselves automatically ineffective in our ability to serve the living God. What does that mean? It means when we lose our joy, true joy, biblical joy, the very thing that gives us perseverance through pain, through darkness, through struggles, through adversity, and everything else that comes at the true biblical Christian, if we don't have the joy, the true biblical joy, will be rendered useless in the kingdom of God. It will stifle our gifting. It'll stifle our ministry. It'll stifle what God has called us to do. They go hand in hand. And this is why the enemy always tries to rob us of biblical joy. Not happiness, but the enduring, persevering joy of the Christian that sustains him through his Christian life. David's secret sins were finally exposed by the prophet Nathan that we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7, when he confronted David about his act of adultery and his crime of murder with these epic words. You, he says, are the man. You are the man. But David's sin was not only murder and adultery, but a complete unraveling of the two tables of God's law. David broke the first commandment by not putting God first, but himself. He violated the second commandment when he worshipped the idols of pleasure and convenience. He broke the third when he blasphemed God by becoming a reproach to the people of God. He violated the true spirit of the Sabbath with his false worship. He dishonored his parents by his behavior. He broke the sixth commandment when he committed murder both in his heart and physically. He broke the seventh when he committed adultery both in his thoughts, intentions, and actions. He stole another man's wife and another man's life. He broke the ninth commandment when he lied by trying to cover everything up. And because of his covetousness, lust, and greed, he shattered number ten. This is the reality of David's life and the writing of Psalm 51. David's response is seen in the entirety of Psalm 51, which really isn't a response to Nathan, by the way, but a response to God. He says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. The best example in the Bible of what a repentant heart looks like is Psalm 51. 
But the text doesn't just direct us to a shattered life, but brings us back to a healthy, livable, and lovable existence with God, with others, and yes, with ourselves. In verse 8, he says, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. So the text also brings us good news. It tells us that David was eventually driven by a deep desire to get right with God, with with much heartfelt repentance and desperation, even anguish, as he displays a powerful prayer to God for restoration of the blessed joy of his salvation. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. The text also suggests three great practical questions, which all of us should consider most carefully. And they are as follows. Number one, why God's people should be the most joyous people in the world. Number two, how real Christians may lose the joys of salvation. And number three, how one may have the joy of salvation restored unto him. Let's look at the first one. Why God's people should be the most joyous people in the world. Well, for starters, we are no longer enemies of God. We're no longer God's enemies. We're no longer under his wrath and displeasure. We no longer have to wonder whether or not we are good enough for God because that answer has been answered in Jesus Christ. We have a God as our Father, the only one and true God. Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, as elder brother, and heaven is our eternal home. Why should we not rejoice in that reality? Also, the Lord has given us the greatest work to do, the sanctified act of declaring his son to the world, the only way to salvation. The joy of telling others about how they too can come and know our God and how they too can be reconciled and given a new life. Why should we not rejoice in that reality? Here are some examples from the Word of God where the true Christians find joy. There was joy when we repented of our sin and turned to God for life in Luke chapter 15 and 7 through 10. There was joy when we believed on Christ. 1 Peter 1.8. There was joy when the Holy Spirit came into our hearts. Romans 5 and Galatians 5. There was joy when we went to God in prayer. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. John 16.24. There was great joy when we won someone to Christ. And there was great joy in that city. Acts 8 verse 8. There will be joy when we finish our life work. Acts 20.24. And there will be joy when we come down to suffering and our final death. 1 Peter 4.13 And this is why God's people should be the most joyous people 
in the world. This is why we must be the most joyous people on the planet. And this does not mean, don't complicate it, we need to skip around and be happy and clap in your hands 24-7. It's where this is true joy is an enduring joy. Which brings us to our second point, how real Christians may lose the joys of salvation. How true Christians may lose the joy of their salvation. Most joyless Christians will find their condition due to one or more of these six causes. One or more. When you find someone who is struggling with their joy and maybe have completely lost their joy, you usually can connect it to one of these six causes. Don't get confused with all the ones and twos and threes and fours, okay? Because there's actually, you know, there's three obviously direct points to this message today. But under each point, there are uh, small, smaller points as we go through them. And one of these um, causes, the first cause is some few, of course, discover that they have come into church, but that God has not come into their hearts and lives. That is to say that they are not Christians at all, but only church members. For the Bible says, let them seek the Lord that he may be found and call upon him while he is near. In other words, that there may be a reason where a Christian may not have joy due to the very fact that he's not a believer, that he's just a church member. See, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. It's that simple. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. And when you stand before God in the day of judgment, you're not going to stand there with your pastor. You're not going to stand there with your husband. You won't stand there with your children. You'll be standing there with the church or friends. You'll be standing there all alone before God. Because the Bible says, naked you came into this world, naked you will leave this world. You will stand before God alone. Have you ever heard of a pastor from the 1800s named William Haslam? Anybody familiar with that name? William Haslam. Well, let me tell you who he was. He actually was converted by his own sermon. Believe it or not. He was converted by his own sermon. What do you mean? In his autobiography, From Death into Life, he recounts that he was converted in the midst of one of his own sermons. Haslam, who was born in 1817, began his ministry after graduating from Durham University in 1841. On Sunday in 1851, following a period of deep conviction of sin, apparently Haslam was listening to the testimonies of his congregation as they would retell their conversion experiences. This drove him to seek counsel from a nearby pastor by the name of Robert Atkin, who persuaded him of the absolute necessity of conversion. Haslam ascended into his pulpit of the, the church with the intention of telling his congregation that he would not preach again to them until he was saved and to ask them to pray for his conversion. However, when he began to preach on the text, What think ye of Christ? He saw himself as a Pharisee who did not recognize that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. At that moment, the Holy Spirit breathed new life into him and the effect was so obvious and marked that a local preacher who was present stood up and shouted, the pastor 
is converted. The pastor is converted. And the people rejoiced. Others were also converted on that day, including members of his own household. Others fled from the church in fear. A revival followed that blessed Sunday that lasted three years, during which time souls were saved weekly, often daily. It was a well-known fact that before his conversion, that he taught in the what he taught that the church basically was the ark of God, where one must be saved. Later, realizing that it is Christ who is the ark of God, and the building does not save. Imagine that. And this is why it's extremely important to understand that coming into the church doesn't save us. The church isn't the ark of God. The church is here to assemble so we can worship the true ark of God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Some lose their joy because of hardships and persecution. This is a real joy zapper if you're not grounded in the true biblical joy of the Lord. Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. When people insult you, do you rejoice and are you glad and joyful about that? If someone were to call you a name today, how would you respond? Would you get mad and leave the church? Squeal your tires on the way out of the parking lot? Stick your hand out the window and yell a few choice names? Or would you do as Christ said? Would you rejoice and be glad? Are you rejoicing and glad when you are persecuted? I'm not saying we should be indignant so much as calling us names. But if we're being persecuted, as the Bible says, for righteousness sake, this should not be something that zaps our joy. Because Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven. If you can imagine that. For in the same way he says, they persecuted prophets, the prophets who were before you. Does this give you any indication of what Christ is talking about? Read about the prophets. Read about how they were treated. Read about how Jeremiah was treated for bringing the word of God. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not think it is a strange, think it strange concerning the fiery trials, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. I don't know how many times myself where I'm caught off guard and something strange has happened to me and it's, you know, it's a situation, it's a fiery trial and if I'm not where I should be with my heart, I can think it's a very strange thing indeed. What's going on in my life right now? But if I realize is what Peter's saying here that I'm not to be dismayed I'm not to think it's strange, but I'm to think it's an ordinary thing that happens to true Christians. We look at betrayal and rejection are other key functions and features that people experience that can literally rob you of your joy. To be betrayed by someone, right? To be rejected. I mean, how? what a, what a buzz killer, right? What a joy killer these things can be if we don't look at them in the right perspective. We're being, with the, the term today, bullied. But the reality is, if we're being bullied, but our eyes are upon Christ, 
and we have the fear of the Lord and we have the joy of Christ, we can endure any kind of bullying that the world throws at us, young or old. And this is why it's so important to build your children up in the Lord, to build them up in the word of God. Because if they're sitting there and their and their diets are the things of the world, the movies of the world, the reactions of the world, and what they're doing is they're characterizing and imitating the world. When things happen to them, they'll respond just like the world. They'll want revenge, or they will they'll think of all kinds of ways to get back at that person. Or they'll feel as if they're being robbed of something and they're not getting what they deserve and they'll fall into this spirit of entitlement. But in reality, we're entitled to only one thing and that is the wrath of God. But because of God's grace, he's delivered us out of that and he's put the joy of Christ within us to endure all things. Listen to what the psalmist said. David said in Psalm 142 verse 4, he said, I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would even know my name. Refuge, all refuge has failed me, and no man cares for my soul. No man cares about me. No one cares about me. This is where he was at. Everything in his life that he depended on, every single person that he trusted, had failed him. And if it could get any worse, no one would even want to even know him. It's not that they didn't know him, it's that they didn't want to know him. They wanted nothing to do with him. Nobody cared about his soul. Can I tell you this much and be honest with you today without sounding mean? The world does not care about your soul. They don't care about you. Majority of what you listen to and watch, they don't care about you at all. They don't care about your soul. A lot of them try to make you, try to convince you that they do, but they don't. But I can say one thing for sure that God does. God does care about you, your soul, and the things that you deal with every single day. The Bible is very clear about that. The Bible says, all of my ways are in your hands, O Lord. And God has ordained all those things for his glory. In Isaiah 53, 3, it says about our Lord that he was despised and he was rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one for whom people would hide their faces from. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Our Lord, our Savior, understood the reality of massive rejection and betrayal. We have this example from our Lord. He himself suffered greater than we'll ever suffer. Some lose their joy due to an illness or sickness. There's nothing that can deceive your soul so quickly like sickness can or bad health. Because I'll tell you something, when you are truly sick, if you're always strong and you're always vibrant, don't pick on the sick person because of where they're at in their life and the things that they struggle with and the hope that they, that, that, that they sometimes lose because sickness does something to our logic. Okay, Disease of the mind does something in the way we rationalize reality. And this is why we've got to understand that sometimes illnesses or sicknesses 
or depression or anxiety or these things that come upon us can, if we're not careful, rob us of the joy of our salvation. It's not just your gross sin that's going to rob you of your salvation. There are many things that this, that this world brings at you that can steal your joy. And one of those things can be agonizing depression, anxiety, fear, and grief. And some even lose their joy over great disappointments. Have you ever been greatly disappointed in something like you really had your hopes on something and something was really just, you know, you just your heart was set on it and just tragically it was ripped out right from underneath your feet and just like someone pulled the carpet out right from underneath your feet and there you lie flat on your back wondering what in the world just happened. If we don't look at that with the right biblical perspective, do you know what's going to happen? You're going to get bitter. You're going to get upset. And unforgiveness is going to get inside of you and you're not going to have the joy of the Lord. You know what that's going to happen? It's, it's going to suck out God's calling upon your life. You're not going to be in the mood to go out and witness if you're bitter and unforgiving towards something or someone. You, the last thing in the world you're going to feel like doing is opening up your Bible and getting on your knees in prayer when you're full of bitterness and unforgiveness. Trust me. Why do I say that? Because I know. Because I personally experienced it. Be of good cheer. You share the pain as many who have travailed before you. David, Paul, Job, Peter, even our Lord suffered great distress. So much so that the Bible says that even our Lord, it says, in great anguish he prayed even more fervently. His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I doubt any of us have ever gotten to that point. You ever been so stressed to the point where you start bleeding? Heard a story about a about a, a, a Jew who was brought back to um, Auschwitz on a trip back there years and years later when it became like a type of a museum, right, where you could go and look at these these things. And when he came in contact of of where his family was located. Something just out of nowhere came over him and he suffered such great trauma that he began to sweat blood. The intensity of that reality of what had happened to his past brought about these physical symptoms. Psalm 42, the psalmist said, Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Charles Spurgeon once said, I know perhaps as well as anyone what depression means and what it is to feel myself sinking lower and lower. Yet at the worst, when I reach the lowest depths, I have an inward peace, which no pain or depression can in the least disturb. Trusting in Jesus Christ, my Savior, there is still a blessed quietness in the deep caverns of my soul. So when you feel the bottom drop out of your life and you feel many of us struggle with depression, I know in this church, and you find yourself going lower and lower and lower, 
just know that there's a portion of your being that cannot be touched because it's that place ordained of God where no pain, nothing can steal your joy in the Lord. Job 1.7 said, I'd rather be strangled to death than to suffer like this. My heart really goes out to to those who struggle with these infirmities. Um, And it's always been really a part of my ministry because I've suffered from them. And I've tasted the pain of that and I I know what it's like. and, um, And I know how it can rob you of your joy if you're not careful. And because you can begin to focus so much on your pain that you lose sight of Christ. And when you lose sight of Christ, you lose your joy. And if you lose your joy, you lose your strength. And everything just kind of gradually goes downhill from there. But I do know the other side of it is that when you do focus on Christ, you do live in his word, you do cling to his promises. There is a place there. It doesn't matter what is going on in your life, whether you're being burned at the stake or whether you're driven to despair with depression. There is a place there, a hiding place, where you can cling to Christ and your pain and whatever you're going through even makes Christ shine brighter than ever before. And this is true. Some lose their joy because of some great sin they've committed. Some lose their joy because of some great sin that they've committed. You have become so overwhelmed by your besetting sins or your addictions that you've consigned yourself to the house of the damned. Shame has become your name and you are so weakened by this you can barely lift your head to heaven. You ever been there before and you guys have been there and struggled with a besetting sin or an addiction and you just can't seem to get free from it but you hate it? And it just sticks there and it's a pattern and it continually just seems like it's got you ensnared and you just can't get free from it and you hate it. And next thing you know, you've just given up and you're like, I can't beat this. I guess I'm just doomed and damned. There's nothing I can do to escape this. But do not despair for God's word says, my little children, these things, right, I speak unto you that you may not sin. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the whole world. That we have an advocate. You guys have to understand something, that you are not perfect people. We don't preach a sinless perfection doctrine here. We don't preach a behavioral gospel, a gospel of good behavior. We preach Christ, crucified. Paul said, I am crucified daily. Many times, I'm crucified moment by moment. But we have an advocate, brothers and sisters. Don't fall into despair. Don't get to the place in your life where you're just like, I I just, I I can't, I don't know what to do. It's over for me. I have sinned too greatly. God hates me. There's no more love for me. There's no more mercy for me. I have literally exhausted all of God's mercy. For the world hates me. My own parents hate me. Everybody else hates me. God who is perfect must hate me. It's not true. 
because our great God sent a great Savior to bear the full wrath of God in your place upon the cross at Calvary. He bore and exhausted the full wrath of God. And he went down into the very belly of hell and rose again and defeated death, hell, and the grave. And that's just not the fact, yes, it's a one-time act in history, one event, but the reality is is that he's there making intercession for us, not for the world, but for us. Don't be despairing. Don't run to the world because you've given up on God and you think that you're in such a position that you're just unsavable anymore. That's not true. We have Christ because we are very sinful people. Even in our redeemed state, we are very sinful people. That's doctrinally sound preaching, by the way. We'll always need Christ. We'll always need His forgiveness. We'll always need to repent. We'll always need to look to the Savior until we take our last breath. Another joy zapper, number five, is that God has called some to render a great service for Him and they have hesitated. Certainly we can have no greater joy than finding the work that Christ wants to do and getting into it. What's the point here? You know that something that can really rob your joy is if you know that God has called you to a certain area of service and you suppress it and you don't do it. This can wreak havoc upon your life. I think a lot of the problems that you see today uh, in, in the church in America is that they, 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 they suppress the Great Commission. Jesus said, go, we don't go. We do everything else but go. So what we do is that in our disobedience, we find ourselves doing everything else out of an act of guilt. What's the first thing that Adam and Eve did when they sinned against God's command? They did, but what did they begin to do? They began to labor. They began to sow. They began to work for what they had lost. They tried to regain through guilt what they had lost by sowing fig leaves. They immediately after they sinned, they began to sow. And many of us, a lot of times, that instead of just repenting and obeying God, we move towards all other different things and we begin to try to work back and gain back by our good works what only Christ has won for us. It's built into our very nature. It's a default into our very being that when we sin, we're either going to go one or two directions. We're either going to go to Christ, but if we feel that we have sinned too greatly and that Christ wouldn't forgive us, we turn to other things. And we begin to strive. We begin to sow. We begin to try to do things to try to recapture what we've lost through our good works, which never works. You cannot outsend the grace of God. God has called you to some area of ministry. Do it. The longer you suppress it and become like Jonah, you begin to go your own way, want to do your own thing, and you're just not willing to, or let me just say this much. Maybe God has called you to a certain area of service. It doesn't have to be behind the pulpit. It doesn't have to be an elder. <clears throat> it doesn't have to be an evangelist in that sense. But God may have, have called you to do something. And you just keep putting it off. And you're just not doing it. You're not doing it. I'd greatly encourage you to do it. To obey God and do what he has called you to do. Because if you don't, what that can do in the long run, it can steal your joy. 
the joy of your salvation. There's nothing more fulfilling. Obviously, we know that loving Christ, worshiping God is the greatest thing. But how do we worship worship God? I mean, the whole idea of waiting on the Lord isn't sitting on your couch. Waiting upon the Lord is waiting. If you go to a restaurant and you have a waiter come to you, he's not just sitting in the kitchen doing nothing. He's waiting on you. He's moving. He's moving. He's acting. He's doing. Waiting upon the Lord isn't just sitting in some corner and waiting for the Lord to hit you over the head of a magic wand. No, it's waiting upon the Lord. You're working. You're doing the work of the Lord. Very powerful. And the last one is, and the last joy killer is, many have lost their joy because they are immature and without a full understanding of God's word and are led away by some astute and false teacher. This is huge. I mean, this is, the New Testament is just loaded. I can't even begin to even start to, to go through all the verses that, that warn us of false teachers, false doctrine. So much there that, that if you are not grounded in God's word or grounded in a good church, you can be led astray with false doctrine. And nothing will rob you of your, of your godly joy, the joy of your salvation, than being pushed around to and fro by every wind of doctrine out there. It's, it's all of this. This is why it's so extremely important to have um, not only a basis of what we believe. Obviously, every church and every cult, I, you guys know as well as I do, every church will say that they're obeying the Word of God, right? They all will. They'll also go, well, you know, we, we obey the Word of God, but yet they've got all these funky views of Scripture. They're twisting the Scripture. they got terrible interpretation. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, yeah, I understand you're, you're following what you believe the Bible to say, but that's not what the Bible says. Yeah, it may say that in black and white, but that's not what it means. This is why it's so important to be a church that has a confession uh, because it shows what we believe the Bible to say. And it's our groundwork. It's what we, it's who we are as believers. And it builds a fence around us that we don't go running off and getting pulled in every direction. Never can find a church. Always going here. Always got some strange, funky doctrine that you're believing in. It's just tearing you apart. There's no way that you can, you can have the joy of your salvation when you're all over the place. Chasing all these different speakers down, listening to all their different views of, of the word. Now, I'm not saying that there's different preachers out there that can bring different um, angles of the word of God that are extremely powerful and build up our soul and very useful to the glory of God and the body of Christ. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying there are so many voices out there that clamor for your attention that can take you in so many different directions. It can be scary. So we want to make sure you're grounded in a local church. You're grounded under the preaching of God's word and you're submitting to elders of the church. Extremely important. It's not about the elders. It's not necessarily just about the church. It's about your soul. Because the Bible says the, the elders of the church will give an account for your soul. You realize that? They'll have to give an account for your soul. They can't give an account for your soul if you're running all over the world going to 20 different churches. You're really just a maverick with really no accountability, doing your own thing, and it's nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in church history either. The only time you see that kind of behavior in, in, in church history are from heretics. 
or cults. Which leads us to our last and final point. How many, finally, how may anyone have the joy of salvation restored unto him? How may we come back to the restoration and the joy of the Lord? There's only two things uh, need to be set on this point. First, we need to find out the cause of one's trouble. And then this is really important because you don't hear this preached hardly ever. You usually just hear like, oh, just go to Christ, which we always go to Christ. Christ is always the answer. He always is our great high priest. It's always we want to go to God. But God has put together an infrastructure. He's put together his church so it can function in a certain way. You have to deal with people. Okay, following Christ isn't just some lonely by yourself event that happens to you. Your salvation is personal, but your salvation is in context with the local body of believers. How do you grow in the Lord? You grow with others. Where does baptism take place? In the church. Where does church discipline take place? In the church. Where are the ordinances served? In the church. Everything takes place within the confines and the context of the local church. And this is why it's extremely important that if you have trouble, if you have trouble, you're in sin, or you have struggles, that you come together with the elders of the church. Bring your, don't just be a nag, okay? I mean, if there's things that you can handle and deal with, deal with them. But if there are things in your life where you really need help from the church, go to your pastors, let them know what's going on, and have them pray for you. Go to brothers and sisters within the church, trusted brothers, okay, and sisters, brothers to brothers, sisters to sisters. But have that available, because this is key, this is key, it really is. Um, for being able to live a life, being able to capture the joy of the Lord and just be sustained in the joy of the Lord, is you're going to have to have someone to talk to. Okay? You're going to talk to someone. You're going to be on social media. You're going to be talking to someone, talking to one of your friends. But the local church provides that vehicle to where you can go and have that kind of healing conversation. It's supposed to take place in the church. And that's what we're here for. And if there's issues, by all means, come to your elders and say, hey, we're a small church, so you guys have an advantage. You go to a mega church, you get lost in the crowd, you have no one to talk to, they just send you to somebody else or send you to something else. Here, at least you have an opportunity. You have brothers and sisters that are mature in the Lord. You have elders that are, are, are here for you. Utilize that so you don't stray in some area that you don't need to be for your own health. Philemon 1.7 says, Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Sometimes you just need a refresher. Sometimes you just need to be with somebody else and you just need to talk out these things and be refreshed in the Lord, be refreshed in Christ. And if it's a case of there, you are just in a place where you just committed some horrible, horrible, horrible sin. Go before God and humbly repent. And at some point, you're going to have to move forward in faith. Don't stay there. And let me tell you one thing. It's very easy to identify yourself with a particular sin that you've committed in the past or some addictive thing that you've dealt with in the past. Um, it's very, you can make a gospel out of it. You, you ever hear people talk about one particular sin over and over and over and over? Well, back in 1980, I was delivered from heroin, you know, and, and they tell you that they're just miserable life that they were delivered from. But you hear more about their miserable life than you do Christ. It can become an identity. Be careful of that. 
Because once you're delivered from sin, it's not your identity anymore. Oh, I've said I've been delivered from pornography. Okay, that isn't the only sin in the world. Okay, sometimes a person struggles with a certain area, they get deliverance from it, but they become stigmatized by it. And you're even stigmatized by it. It becomes your whole life, your whole identity is around that one sin. You don't even think about the covetousness, the greed, the lying, and all the other stuff that happens in your life. It's just that one sin. I've had people come up to me on the street before, years ago, and I preached in Camden, which was just intoxicated with heroin addiction. And people come up to me and say, hey, you know what? I said, hey, preaching the gospel, repent, turn to Christ. I'm like, well, you know what? I'm okay now because I stopped, I stopped doing heroin. Okay, so, I mean, you are hellbound despite of your heroin, despite of your, your pornography. I don't care whether you quit these sins. It doesn't make you a good person and fit for heaven. The reality is, despite your addiction, you're still headed for hell. You still split hell wide open if you never took one more serving of heroin for the rest of your life, you're still going to end up in hell. This is the mindset that we have a lot of the time. We think we can just quit this one sin. Ah, oh, be okay. Because in reality, you saw David, right? When he rebelled against God, he had violated the whole law. James says, you break one law, you've broken them all. We have to understand that reality. Pray and meditate upon the word of God until your joy is returned. Pray and meditate upon the word of God. I'm telling you something right now. I have picked up my Bible through gritted teeth and I have pulled it up and the last thing in the world I want to do is read this thing. When I feel so run down, so out of it, and I know when I get back into the word of God and I start reading the precious promises of the Holy Word, that something lights back up inside of me and the craving for God comes back and the joy of my salvation returns. Just keep reading the word, reading the word, meditating upon what God says. Your joy will be restored. Reconsecrate your life to God. Not rededicate, reconsecrate. In other words, sometimes... It's a renewal of your love for Christ. Jesus did say that many had left their first love. But that doesn't mean you can't come back to your first love. You see? So we want to make sure we, we're able to recognize this reality where I want to reconsecrate myself to the Lord every waking moment of my entire life. And this is how we find the lost joy of our salvation. I hope this helped a little bit. I mean, I, I know it seemed very practical, uh, and it's supposed to be practical, but sometimes you can go so practical that, you know, people uh, wonder sometimes it's just a self-help sermon. There's nothing self-help about the reality uh, of losing the joy of your salvation, because if you lose that, you lose everything. You may, you may make it through the pearly gates, if that's your only goal in life, but you'll be rendered useless in this life. And that, that's, that's not anything that brings any honor to God, doesn't bring any honor to God's people, and it brings no satisfaction to your own life. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for our time together this morning. And Lord, we'd ask you that, Lord, these things that we discussed this morning, uh, these points that, uh, these, these joy killers that we, that we spoke about, Lord, that you would help us recognize recognize it may be all of them 
It may be all of them. We may be sitting here today with a heart full of bitterness. We may be sitting here today with anger in our hearts. We may have offense in our hearts towards a brother or a sister. There may be offense against me. There may be someone sitting in this congregation today that hates my guts. And I don't even know it. So Lord, if there's any, any bitterness in this church or unforgiveness, Lord, before we take communion today, let, it, let us get it out of us, Lord. The Bible says before uh, we worship, if we have aught against a brother or we have any kind of bitterness towards a brother, that we need to make it right first. Otherwise, our worship's in vain. Don't even take communion if you've got bitterness towards another brother or offense, a sister or whatever. We want God to, to invade our hearts this morning and invade our lives and invade the secret recesses, the things that we're even hiding this morning. You've heard it preached. Those of you who are struggling with sickness, maybe you've lost your joy there. I don't know. Maybe you've just got um, some deep, deep pain. Maybe it's trauma. Maybe you've been abused. Maybe you've been harmed. Maybe you've been hurt. And maybe because of that, you're just unable to experience the joy, the persevering joy of Christ because of some bad tragedy that's happened to you. Very sad. But just remember that the Lord, God Almighty, is seated on the throne. Because this life will be over. That terrible act that happened to you will be no more. For our Lord, He endured the joy set before Him. The cross. You look at the cross and think, boy, how joyful could that actually be? But the outcome of what was gained is immeasurable. There's going to come a day and hour where it's all over. It's over. It's over. All of our opinions die with us. But we will be with the living God forever if we're truly His. All of our pain will be over. Take this joy, not happiness. Yeah, it's great to be happy. If you can be one of those people who have a disposition for being happy all the time, wonderful. But for the most of us, Lord, we ask God that you would help us. Help us come back to that joy, the enduring joy of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.